the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Welcome back. Bible Book Club listeners, and if you are as weary about being in law school, maybe we have some attorneys. Well, we are in law school. You're I right. feel like I'm Good in law school, and I certainly didn't <laughs> go to law school. So no offense if you're an attorney and this is enjoyable to you, but uh, we are continuing in law school this week. No, we just get a break a this bit. week. We get a break. Oh, we get a break. No more laws. Just this week and well, next week, this no week. laws. Just wait till we get to Leviticus, but, but we have a plan. Not mm-hmm. Never fear. Never fear. <laughs> but last week, we certainly were still in law school. So Moses was completing those ceremonial laws while he was up on that mountain. And they were the ones about how to offer to God daily, which is just good things that we can do today still. A few more items that were to be placed inside the tabernacle. A shout out to two of the craftsmen who built the tabernacle. And lastly, the importance of the final mention of the phrase, then the Lord said to Moses for the seventh time, that the Sabbath is a holy time in a holy space. And that theme is going to come back. So we'll we'll revisit that in, in the next episode. But in this episode, we're going to cover chapter 32, which is a really fun chapter, actually, and a, an iconic chapter. And we're going to get this great interruption to the laws and this creation of a nation. God is creating and setting up the principles for this nation, Israel. And for the next two chapters, we're going to get a little break in that. Um, Why? Why? Why are we getting this break? Well, it's not a good reason. The people, this is the scene. The people have been left down at the base of the mountain by Moses. And remember from a few chapters ago, they are terrified of the mountain after that episode when it quaked and growled at them. And they are just like, okay, Moses, you do all the talking to God. We will wait here. And that is what they're supposed to be doing, waiting. Joshua is mid-mountain. Moses, he went up with Moses and Moses left him mid-mountain, which to me sounds the worst place to be because in my mind, he is the wrong side of the cloud. Now, Moses is at the top of the mountain and I have to wonder, remember it kind of says that he went up through the cloud. Mm -hmm. What is on the other side of the cloud? Well, if you're in a plane and you're inside the cloud, there's a whole lot of turbulence, which if you've never experienced that before, can be scary. Yes, that is exactly what I was thinking. You know, when you go through uh, the clouds on a plane and all of a sudden you break through the clouds, the plane levels out and you just have this cerulean blue forever. And that's what I'm picturing where Moses was. I'm picturing that it was beautiful and balmy and he's just up there. He can see forever. Um, Well, poor Joshua was mid-mountain, you know, in the middle of <laughs> in the, the dark. storm and the turbulence Thinking, and all the when mess. is Moses coming back? Now, to the Israelites trapped back on land, so Moses is up having this experience with God for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites at the bottom, trapped on land and looking up, it must have looked like Moses was climbing the Tower of Terror. They're afraid of it. It's lightning. But Moses knew what was on the other side. He's been up and down that mountain a lot of times. So he, he knows he's going to the presence of God, the clear skies where he could see forever, perhaps into eternity. 
It may have been really sweet. What was it like being up there with God? Was it work as they discussed all these laws or was it rest? It's a long time. What did he eat? Or is food unnecessary in the presence of God? Perhaps Moses was happy just to be away from the two million children or Israelites that he had to babysit all the time. It was whiny, whiny. Oh, exactly. I only have five kids. And uh, when I'm gone for seven days, it's enough to make me feel like a new woman. Um, If I had 40, uh, my kids wouldn't have recognized me when I came back. So he could be, who knows, this might have been respite for Moses. We just don't know. And that is the crux of the problem that was going on below. Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days and the Israelites, his children in so many ways, had been left alone. And they imagine the worst and panic. And in their panic, they create this crazy calf idea. And isn't that just really a picture of today in life? What happens? The unknown. If you're sitting in the middle of the unknown, your brain starts to go to all the scenarios that could be going on. And it's usually not good ones. Oh, and let me tell you, I used to tell moms because, you know, we write, we have a program called iMom. I used to tell moms all the time, you know, you think you're 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 having adult discussions with your husband and making decisions for your children. But if they only hear part of stories and it pertains to them, in their heads, they make up the rest of the story. Right. And what they make up is invariably so much worse than what is actually going on. And so always try to be aware of your children when they're listening and just tell them the truth. Tell them what's happening up front so they don't make up some crazy story that is worse than what's, you know, causes more fear than is necessary. In this case, I I don't, I don't know that Moses told him he was going to be gone for 40 days because they he may not have known. No. And, and so they get a little crazy. And in chapter 32, we see that the people have very fickle faith. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You gotta love this phrase. As for this fellow Moses, <laughs> like really loved the commentaries on this. But here is my favorite regarding this little phrase of total disdain. Israel is like a child waiting to be picked up from school. Their parent is late. The child moves from worry to panic to anger. And given enough time, the child totally convinces themselves that they They have the lamest parent on the planet. That's how Israel is acting. Who is this fellow Moses? He's not our guy anymore. We have a principle that we use in our office, Mm -hmm. and it is assume positive intent (laughs) because you don't know what's going on and your mind starts making all these crazy things. But really, the person didn't intend, that parent didn't intend to leave that child there late. There was traffic or there was something else that happened. Assume positive intent. And if only the Israelites had assumed positive intent right. and had faith that Moses would come back down with these revelations <laughs> on tablets. But, you know, out of sight, out of mind. What makes this statement really laughable is that the Israelites admit what he did. They say, this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, like it's not a big deal anymore, like it was nothing or maybe even a bad thing. This fellow Moses who single-handedly defeated Pharaoh and saved two million people. The problem here is a lack of trust. The Israelites' true character has surfaced again. And it's as if we're back in Egypt 
20 chapters ago. They still don't trust God. And where there is no trust, a void appears. And where there is a void, a need to fill it becomes consuming. This is our humanity. This is how we were created, to need to be united with God. He fills the void. And that is probably why this crazy calf idea happens in the middle of the tabernacle section. It is as if the enemy, the devil himself is saying, nope, not having that tabernacle. Can't have Israel becoming a nation and developing a relationship with God because then that promise of a savior might actually happen. So let me fill the void with some crazy calf ideas. Ugh, it just makes you want to scream. The Israelites do it and we do it. We do the same thing. We fill our lives with our own solutions instead of turning to God. Now, back to our story. This is interesting. Aaron is in charge of the Israelites while Moses is on the mountain. And he, big brother to Moses, is no better. He is clearly the brother with a very weak will. Verse two, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, so the Israelites go to Aaron. They say, make us some gods who will go before us because we don't know what happened to Moses. And what does Aaron do? He, he obliges them. Oh, he caves. He totally caves. I wonder if he's sad at that point thinking maybe that his brother, brother was, was killed. Yeah. I, but still, he still knows it's wrong. wrong. Remember, they just had all heard all these other Ten Commandments, all these other things from Moses. They'd had that big celebration, the 70 at the feet of God, you know, looking at the, the streets of Lap. Um, they, they all had just had this big theophany. And the other reason that it's really shameful that they doubted like this, they were firsthand witnesses of all the these plagues. miracles. Oh my gosh, yes. Of all these miracles, of all the things that God had done, how could they so, I mean, 40 days, I guess, is a long time, mm-hmm. but it's really not. And they It's still not a long time. Not when you spend 400 years in slavery. Right. All right. Why did he cave? We don't know. Out of fear, out of weak faith. It really doesn't say. Aaron puts the people to action, creating a calf. Then he says, these are your gods, which was a direct violation of the first and second commandment, which say, you shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, pretty specific. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There was no excuse. The Israelites had just received this command days ago at the base of the mountain. They could not have forgotten it in such a short time. Now, the other statement, let's cover, who brought you up out of Egypt? This guy, Moses, who brought you up out of Egypt? This is the most shocking statement because it denies everything that has taken place in Exodus up to this point. Exodus is the story of how God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian oppression, created a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, and then dwelt among them in the tabernacle. We have covered two of those three things already. He brought them out out of Egypt and he created a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, which they are now breaking. So he hasn't been able to dwell among the tabernacle yet. This is not the story of how a handmade gold calf brought them out of Egypt. There's just nowhere that fits in. (laughs) 
No. Why a calf, you may be saying. The calf was a common idol image in the ancient Near East. It was often an earthly representation of a god and not necessarily thought of as the god itself. Rather, it was thought that the calf or bull was a seat or pedestal for the god to sit or stand on. Now, some commentaries believe that the Israelites were trying to like substitute the calf for the ark they just heard about because in both both were gold and God's presence resided on top of both. So it's kind of like they're like, oh, well, Moses and the ark didn't work out. So let's like see if we can just, you know, pull something else off kind of. But the question is, what was Aaron thinking? Verse five may help us with that answer. May not. (laughs) Or not. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. See, I told you they love partying, these people. Oh, they love partying. Wait till we get into the word revelry. Some commentaries think Aaron was trying to recover from what he had done with the calf by redirecting them to an altar for the Lord. Yeah, because he's following the rules that that they got about the sacrifices, the types of sacrifices. Exactly. He's hodgepodging it. But some don't. Some commentaries don't believe that. I kind of lean with them because what happens next? So the festival of fake fellowship is what happened next. And this fellowship begins almost identically to the festival Moses held in chapter 24 when he confirmed the covenant. Remember, Moses got up early and sacrificed burnt and fellowship offerings and leaders had a covenant meal in the presence of God. But that's where the similarity ends. This celebration is a reversal. The Israelites are systematically undoing the covenant. They create their own covenant meal of revelry. The Hebrew word for revelry is sabach, which I probably said wrong, which connotes sexual activity. Mm, It was like a big orgy. This is exactly, this is not a celebration of relationship with God or even relationship with each other. This was a festival of self-indulgence. Okay, here is God's reaction to the people. Verse seven, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, they've become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I love the parental frustration in God's words here. These are your people. It's like sometimes when I need my husband to go get my son, I'm like, go get your son. Look what your son did. Do you know what your son said today? (laughs) It does sound exactly like that. God is furious and wants to disown this people. Poor Moses. Verse nine, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So I've always kind of missed this last phrase here, but God wants to be left to do what God wants to do. He wants to let his anger burn. And he's giving Moses a little heads up that he wants to do this. His anger is totally justified. God miraculously moved heaven and earth in the plagues to free the people from Egypt. And yet within months, 
the people have rejected his plan. And in rejecting his plan, they've rejected him. God takes another little dig at the Israelites. He says, I have seen these people mocking what the Israelites said about this fellow Moses. It's almost like he said, if they're going to call you this fellow Moses, my chosen man, I'm going to call them these people. He's really like, you don't know Moses? Then I guess I don't really know you. The last sentence is easy to overlook, but has enormous significance that Moses would not have missed. God says, then I will make you into a great nation. In effect, God is saying that he He will make Moses a new Abraham, a great nation, the one that the promised seed would come from. God is telling Moses, hey, I'm willing to start over without the Israelites. And I'm just remembering that God kind of promised that he would never destroy everybody on the earth again after the situation with Noah and the ark. But he, he, I guess he didn't say that he wouldn't do it again. He said he wouldn't do it with water. Yeah. So again, I don't know whether he would have destroyed them in totality or oppression would have come against them because you're you're going to say in a minute, and I'm kind of getting ahead of stuff. He's he's going to not want to send the angel with them, which they eventually would have either been enslaved again or killed. So keep going. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So again, remember our parent example. One parent has seen what the child did. The other parent, Moses, is really calm because he has not yet seen what the children did. (laughs) So he is very eloquently diffusing God's anger. He meets God's anger brilliantly by reminding God of all that God so often reminded the Israelites of, that they were his people and he had made promises. It is in this moment and others like this that we see in Moses what God saw when he chose Moses for this mission. These attributes were not readily apparent in Moses' early leadership when he often insecurely whined about his inability and Israel's, but he has developed into a patient, selfless, steadfast leader. Like I said, of course, it was easy for Moses to be rational because unlike God, he hadn't yet seen with his own eyes just how disgusting the rebellion had become. Well, and I also think it's funny how when he's telling God, hey, 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 calm down, he's like, why should they complain that you brought them out to wander and be killed again? They were literally already saying that to him. So he kind of had already heard them saying that. And he's kind of reminding God... You did make a promise. Let's 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 cool our heads prevail here. (laughs) Well, I think a comparison could be made between Moses and Jesus. Moses is here pleading on the Israelites' behalf with God. Hey, don't forget your promise. And Jesus is there today pleading on our behalf for you and for me, for all the sins that we continually commit. We're stiff-necked people too, just like Mm -hmm. the Israelites (laughs) were. And Jesus is up there going, Wait, God, don't forget. Yes. You loved him so much. And we 
we can have mercy and compassion yeah. on them. And he, he intercedes for us exactly like Moses says. Okay, so here is Moses' reaction to the people. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved in the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Mm, So a couple of things here. Moses is not God, but now he sees what God saw. And while God refrained from letting his anger burn, Moses does not. Moses throws a fit of frustration. And if I were God, I would have enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you go, boy, you just go, go vent yourself. The smashing of the tablets is more than just an impulsive fit of burning anger. It is super symbolic. The Israelites had literally already broken the laws on the tablets before they even got a copy. So Moses physically breaks them you know, symbolically saying it's broken. You've already broken it. It would have been like having a big covenant wedding ceremony and then having an affair before you even get a copy of the marriage certificate. Moses's action was symbolically just. Perhaps that is why there seems to be no recompense for Moses who just smashed the tablets that he and God had spent 40 days working on. Yeah, because it can't have been easy to carve that stuff into the rock. Well, and there's a lot of commentaries on this one. And the first time that he gets the tablets, it says the finger of God. But the second time it says he, he has, has to, to do it himself. So that so might have been his, like, uh, yeah, consequence. <laughs> but I think God was secretly applauding the action. Um, now, second point here is Moses is also not Aaron. He has no fear of the people at all. He single handedly shuts down a massive block party. Remember, there are two million of them. And without a word from the Israelites, He commands a consequence for their stupidity that is hilariously creative. Moses burns the golden cow to dust and makes them drink it. That's kind of savage. Oh, they are literally being forced to swallow their own sin. The result is that the gold calf, their self-made God, becomes human waste. And they now clearly know exactly what Moses thinks of their God. Moses has made the people look like the fools that they are, and he turns next to his brother. This is Moses' reaction to his brother. In verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. You know, like it wasn't oh, my gosh, fault. Exactly. It just kind of happened. Now, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. 
and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. Moses turns to Aaron for understanding. How? How did this happen? I left you in charge. Moses is in utter disbelief that his brother could have taken part in such an outrageous affront to God. So he suggests that the people must have done right. something. He what did they to do to you? Because Moses clearly got them under control in seconds mm-hmm. flat. Um, but Aaron's response does not support that theory that Aaron was coerced. He blames the people for being evil. Takes no responsibility. Exactly. He suggests that Moses' long absence was a problem. So he blames, kind of blames Moses. Like, why were you gone so long? He covers up his part by depicting the creation of the calf as a miracle. That would have been a miracle for a it calf. It just popped right yeah, out. Yeah, popped out. <laughs> It is Cain all over again. Mm. Cain killed Abel way back in Genesis 4. God said to Cain, where is your brother? God I knows, don't know. God knows my exactly where his brother was. Right. That's what he said. Cain said, I don't know. Am I his keeper? Similarly, Aaron says, I don't know. I threw gold in the fire and out came a calf. There is nothing new under the sun. Every day we set out on a path, a path to do good or evil. And every day we make choices about the path we'll take. And just like Cain, every choice has a consequence. Some are clear and some obscurely creep up on us after years. On this day, Aaron chose the wrong path. We have a chart on how the path to good or evil occurs from season one, um, where we, we discuss Genesis. And it is a great visual about choices and how to get back on the good path. So we're going to put that in the show notes again. And and here's a hint. It doesn't, you don't get back on the path by not taking responsibility exactly. for what you did. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The path kind of uses Adam and Eve and Cain as examples, but we, we get this every day in everything we do. Everything. You're either moving towards the cross or away for it in every choice and every thought that you have. And the trick is, we're always going to get off the path in everything we think about and do. But the trick is to recognize it and get, and back, get back on and get back. And Aaron somehow does that. We just don't know how. It's going to be one of those mysteries, but I'm going to talk about it in a minute. All right. But Moses looked up. So Moses drops that line of discussion about Aaron. He looked up and saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. Moses is not blind. And despite his love for his brother, he saw that Aaron had played a part in this rebellion. What is not clear is what God and Moses think or do about Aaron's disobedience. Because unlike Cain and so many others, God is somewhat silent on Aaron's disobedience. And Aaron goes on to serve as high priest, which is a huge, huge honor and responsibility. There is more to the story about Aaron that was not written in Exodus. Our author, Moses, gives a little bit more detail in Deuteronomy 9.18 when he recounts this story to the Israelites so that they will remember what happened. It says, then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And this is what he says. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. 
Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw that dust into the stream that flowed down the mountain. So Moses attributes the lives of Aaron and the lives of the people as an act of God's mercy and his intercession. I sometimes picture heaven as having this great cloud-like library, and in it are all the prequels, sequels, and chapter addendums to our one book, this Bible. When I get to heaven, this story is on my list to research. Like how it really happened, you mean? I am convinced that Moses left out a lot of interesting details about what else may have gone down in his discussion with God about his big brother Aaron and Aaron to reinstate him as high priest. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a true act of intercession on his behalf and just forgiveness. Because so many are going to die from this infraction, but not Aaron. He's reinstated as high priest. You know, I wonder if it has something to do with the heart because there's so, I know you, you, you're you laughing at me because I always come back to this, but I really think that a lot of, of what God is teaching us in instruction has to do with the posture of our heart. Um, David, a man after God's own heart. We haven't gotten there yet, but someday we will. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's a very sinful man. He, he, he commits a lot of sin. However, his heart is seeking after God in all things. Well, and I maybe that's where Aaron was. I, of course, his heart had to be brought about, clearly, for him to be high priest, the only one who could go into the most holy of holies. But I love how Moses, it's kind of cute how Moses leaves out the family conversation. Oh, because he's put in some other details that <laughs> yeah. we've talked about him yeah. before putting in details that almost seem yeah. trivial, or why would he put that in but there? this is a family embarrassment, so we just don't need to put that in the book of Exodus, what really, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he kind of doesn't go into all the detail. But again, we'll find out when we get to have it. All right, now here's Moses. Moses's action against the people because God's talked, you know, Moses has questioned different people, but now this is his action against the people. Verse 26. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. All right, I love this crazy. section. I love this You section. love it? He's basically telling them to commit murder, which is one of the 10 commandments. I, I don't love that part of it. What I love is the redemption of this tribe. So let me set this up for you if you weren't with us in season one, which you were, Heather, so you'll remember this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Levites are gonna step up. Now, remember, A, Aaron is a Levite, and it is implied that he would have been among them. So that heart change, we assume, has already happened. And it's says that all of them come forward indicating great commitment and clarity amid chaos and rebellion. This is a point of redemption for this clan. In Genesis 49, season one, episode 36, at Jacob's death, Jacob prophesies about his sons and their future clans, the 12 tribes of Israel, of which Levi is one of the tribes. This is what Jacob says about Levi. 
and his tribe. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. So here's the history, the backstory. Simeon and Levi secretly and vengefully as brothers killed the Shechemites in Genesis 34. The outcome of that vile killing was that together the sons were dangerous so they would be divided and scattered. You cannot hang out together anymore. You guys are bad together, nor can your clans hang out. Simeon's tribe in the future, when we get into kings and all that, are going to be settled within Judah's territory. They don't even get like their own space. They have to settle within Judah. And then they are totally omitted in Moses's blessing in Deuteronomy 33. So Simeon, you're going bye-bye. Bad, bad dude, bad tribe. Levi's curse that they're going to be scattered among all the tribes becomes a blessing here in Exodus when the tribe stands with Moses. They step forward in unity. They see what's right. They do it, including Aaron, and they use the sword that they used in anger and deception in Genesis is now used for the Lord in Exodus. The tribe of Levi will still be scattered as the original curse indicated that Jacob gave, but this time as a blessing, the Levites will be scattered as the priests to every tribe and live among them. The lesson is even the results of sin can become a means of blessing. I guess I understand. However, they still didn't get their own tribe. They have to share everybody or their own land. They have to share everybody else's. Correct. But I'm still kind of stuck on the fact that he told them to violate one of those commandments and that that's apparently okay because it's for the Lord. To violate what? The, the murder? The, the murdering of their own people. 3,000 of them. Yes. And we're all fine with that. Well, God's going to, that's Moses's action. When do mm-hmm. we get to God's? Mm-hmm. And God said he was going to destroy And then him, remember, so. we're going to be wandering in the desert and that whole generation has to die before they get to see the promised land because of what they did. So again. And I'm not questioning God. Who am I to question right. God? I'm not. But I'm just saying, it's just very interesting to me. Well, God, there is judgment. Just, there, you know, there's there's consequences for sin. In this case, there's judgment. And and we know in Revelations, there's there's going to be a second coming and, and a, another judgment. So this is part of the part of God. There is mercy and grace in God, but there also is a dealing with evil. Okay. Now, this is Moses's action on behalf of the people. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses heads back up the mountain to make atonement for the people who remain after the elimination of the guiltiest. Similar to the high priest entering the tabernacle with an offering to atone for the people's sin, Moses enters the mountaintop, that third division of holiness, and offers himself as an atonement for his people's sin. Moses, in his willingness to suffer for his people, is foreshadowing Jesus Christ's sacrifice of himself for us. 
there is some disagreement about whether Moses was offering to die or to be eternally condemned. In other words, blotted from the list of the righteous, because later in the Bible, there's that talk about, you know, we talk about the book, the, the book of life. Well, I didn't read the commentaries like you did, but I almost when I read that part felt like he was he kind of like said that to God. Almost as if he knew God wasn't going to blot him out and God's going to let him finish this promise that he gave him that he was going to be able to lead these people. So it was almost like, fine, then he didn't think he would do it when he was asking him to do it. He did. I mean, most commentaries do agree that the position of his heart was he had just gone through this whole lesson in 40 days with God about the sacrifice and understanding that, uh, you know, what they were going to have to do to atone for their sin. There had to be a sacrifice. And so Moses has this picture in his head, you know, that I'm going to we're going to build this this tabernacle and there's going to be this holy of holies and that's where we're going to atone for sin. And so he was going to that third part of the mountain where only he could go. He was the only one who could go there. So he knows that this probably all rests on him. And so his his heart in doing so is good. Some commentaries say that that mention of lot me out of the book might have meant like condemn me to hell. But most, and I agree with the most, feel like he was just saying he wouldn't be eternally separated from God, but just end my life. Use me. Um, as a sacrifice used me as then. a sacrifice to atone to what they did because which goes remember, back to what you said about him being a metaphor for Jesus right remember what they did was so incredibly thrown into the face of Moses and God and it makes sense a sacrifice of death is what was used for atonement of sin and so that's what he's offering what's to me impressive is the change in Moses over the course of just one year of leading the Israelites. It's glaring. The man who didn't have the confidence to mediate with Pharaoh now boldly mediates for his people with God. The man who was so reluctant to take this job as leader now commands and controls the people like a boss. And the man who felt so disconnected from the Israelites that he thought they would never accept him is now willing to offer his life for them. It is such a great growth for one year, such a growth of leadership skills, such a growth of, you know, a heart willing to do whatever God wants. Okay, next is God's action against the people. Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. God rejects Moses's sacrificial offer of himself. Yeah, he's like, no, I will decide who gets to go on and who doesn't. Yeah, but he does not let the people go unscathed. God strikes them ironically with a plague, a fitting reminder for people who so easily forgot that it was God and this fellow Moses who got them out of Egypt, not a golden calf. And oh yeah, how did they do that? With plagues. If it were not so painful, this plague, it would be ironically funny. We are left with only one mystery at the end of this story because everything was pretty fitting, you know, um, and that mystery is of Aaron. Why was Aaron not killed? Wasn't he the most responsible? Well, we will find out one day on the other side of that cloud. I'm going to choose to believe that it was his heart. Was oh, pure. it had to have been his heart. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. 
New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.